verses 14 through 36. Acts 2, 14 through 36. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about, our, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You made it, Mike. He's got a pretty nice reading voice, doesn't he? If that nursing thing doesn't work out, you could probably take James Earl Jones's job and read the King James to us on tape or something. Well, it's probably the best sermon you're going to hear today. And that's all right. And it only took four minutes. Is that why it's the best? I uh, want us as a body to have a commitment to the public reading of God's word. That's why we read sections of scripture 
Uh, I'm going to talk to you for a few moments about that particular text, but I want you to know how important it is for just the Word of God purely to be laid before you. Um, the early church would dedicate hours of time where they would actually stand at the Word of God being read to them publicly and they would listen to it. They just let the Word of God be read to them. And what Mike read for you is by far one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. We are right now both feet in on the book of Acts. And we're not turning back for a long period of time. We're going to be in the book of Acts and we're going to ride this thing to the end of chapter 28. Um, skipping a few places here and there, but trying to make the most of our time in the book of Acts. You know, the theme of the book of Acts, we learned this a couple weeks ago, and it's the theme that's going to carry us the rest of the way, all the way to chapter 28. It's found in chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus tells his apostles, I want you to go and be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Start at home and work your way out to the end of the earth. Go be my witnesses. And the rest of the book of Acts unfolds as a story, not just tracing generic history, but how that witnessing of Jesus dynamically takes place. And what it does is in ho it hopefully invites all Christians at all places and all times to join this very mission, this very movement of God declaring the greatness of Jesus. This week, what we're going to do is dig into the how of sharing that message. You know, the, the mission that Jesus gave us was to go be my witnesses, but he doesn't say how to do that. Uh, he doesn't say exactly what to say. He doesn't say what order we should put things in. And here in this text, we see a great demonstration of how to do this. We see this is actually the first recorded version of someone witnessing about Jesus to other people giving a witness of Jesus. And this morning what I want to do is just make three really basic observations about how the gospel, the message of Jesus, makes its way to us and how we ought to be able to share that with others. Three really simple things that we see from Peter. We're not going to be able to just take Peter's words and then repeat those words to other people. We've got to see the principles by which Peter operated, which will allow us to understand how the gospel makes its way to us and how we participate in getting the gospel to other people. Okay, three things. Number one, Peter begins his sermon where the listeners are. He begins where they are. Look at the, um, let's see, down in verse 12. Am I echoing to you all? A little echoey? Or is that all right? Verse 12 says this. <clears throat> and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean in response to uh, the, 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 them hearing their own language being spoken? In verse 13, there were others mocking. There were people mocking at the speaking in tongues or the speaking the other language. And look what they're saying. In their mocking, they said, these people are full of new wine, which is a biblical way of saying these people are drunk. These people are, are they have drunk wine, they have enjoyed the, harvest, the, the barley harvest, and they're now at Pentecost partying, so to speak, and they are drunk. So, now look at Peter's first statement with regards to what he says to this in verse 15. 
He says, men of Judea, at the end of verse 14, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, verse 15. These people are not drunk as you suppose. You see, his first statement that he makes to them is in direct response to their question about what's going on. These people have questions about what they're witnessing, about what they're seeing. These people are watching something transpire, and immediately they have a question. They have a wondering. Are these people drunk? They must be drunk. This doesn't make sense. And Peter's very first thing he says is not, well, point one of my outline uh, individuals here, I'd like to teach you this. It's not, it's not that. Point one is he addresses their question. Now, this is key with the gospel. It always starts, the gospel always begins with where we are. It begins with our questions. Jesus did this over and over in his ministry, all the time. He would start where people are. He would begin with their questions. He would address their concerns. When someone would approach him and say, what is the greatest commandment? He would address that question, engage them on that question. When someone would approach and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would address their particular question now this works two ways one is this if you're here this morning and you're actually not a Christian you've got to ask yourself first of all what are your questions what questions do you have right now what fears are weighing heavy on your mind what uncertainties continue to carry most of your thoughts what are the deepest desires you feel that you have right now what are your questions, concerns? What are your burdens? When nothing is on your mind, what do you daydream about? What, what do you think about? What captures your time, the time of your mind most often? What does? And what I present to you, if you're not a Christian, is you think about what burdens your heart most? What questions do you have that drive you the most? The gospel has an answer for those. Jesus takes very serious people's questions. And Christians that are willing to teach you should also be willing to take serious the questions of people that are not yet believers. Where are you and what you're dealing with right now? The, the, the immediate questions you have right now, the burdens that you have right now in your life, whatever they may be, are not things that are in the way of the gospel being taught to you. In fact, they are actually the way that the gospel does come to you. It's the pathway by which the gospel comes to you. What, are you concerned maybe about politics today? You know, who's going to win the election and what's going to happen to our... Are you concerned about that? The gospel actually answers and has an address to that. Are you concerned about the current racial tension in our society? Are you concerned about the acts of violence that are going on? The gospel bears weight on those thoughts. Are you concerned about your financial stability? How you're doing in your life? Are you concerned about... Uh, your career path, what's going on with that? Do you have relational woes that you're dealing with in your life right now? Concerns in your current situation with your relationships, are those burdening your heart? Let me explain to you, the gospel answers and takes in all of those questions. Every one of them. You have a question about the politics of this world and you're worried about maybe where our country is going. You know the gospel weighs in and says that Jesus is Lord. It weighs in on that. Do you have questions about the tension that we're experiencing in our culture over race and the evil that we're seeing and the violence that we're seeing? The gospel weighs in and says, yes, there's a reason for evil. 
And that problem of evil doesn't just rest in them who do bad things, but it rests in all of us. And the answer is in Jesus. Are you concerned about your financial security? Jesus says you, if you keep first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. Do you see what I'm getting at? The gospel does not say, hey, I don't care about your burdens right now. The gospel doesn't say, I don't really care where you are mentally. Let me just tell you the information about Jesus. The gospel comes to your questions, receives them, listens to them, gives you some stability, some foundational answers by way of bringing you the message of Jesus Christ. It always starts where you are. So you need to find out your biggest questions, your greatest concerns, and ask someone you know who might be a Christian, who is a Christian, how the gospel addresses them. Now, the second thing is this. If you are here today as a Christian, this is a key approach that you've got to register in your mind. As you're working with people to be a witness of Jesus, don't just have in your back pocket your four scriptures that you want to splurge at them. Be a person that receives their questions, understands how to address them. This is how the gospel remains relevant in our culture. The gospel doesn't remain relevant because we change the doctrine of it to make it cooler or more hip. The gospel remains relevant because it continues to answer the contemporary questions of people in our society. It continues to do that, the same gospel. Quickly, if you're a Christian, here's how you might think about doing that. Number one, be really good at asking people you care about, people that are in your life, inquiring, discovering questions. Ask them questions. What are you worried about? How are things going in your life? What's the biggest concern that you have? Is everything okay? Ask open-ended, discovery-based questions that you might know them better, understand their burdens better, just to receive it. Number two, understand people's needs before you just present your information. When you're thinking about being a witness of Jesus Christ, understand people's burdens, people's needs. And this requires good, thoughtful dialogue with them. And number three, humbly and patiently reflect on how the gospel can address those. Be willing also to say, you know, I'm not really sure about that. In fact, this happened to me this week. Um, the gentleman that I exercise with at the gym, this, um, he's Cliff and Linda's financial advisor. He'll probably appreciate me that plug, you know. Go see him <laughs> if you got financial questions. He was asking me, he goes, you know, uh, we, about once a day, we'll talk about some things. He, he knows my profession. We talk about stuff. And he says, I, I'm just not sure what to do. Like my personal holdings in my finances, where I invest in, are in some companies that are doing some things that I'm morally against right now. And I'm just not sure if I should continue to... He had a question about how the gospel bears weight on how he invests his money. And I can tell you, ethically, I didn't have a great answer in that moment. I said, can I think about that for a day or two? I'm not 100% sure how we should think about that. And then a few days later, I went back and spoke to him about it. But, but do you understand, like, it's okay just to say, I'm not sure. L let me think about that. Let me, let me look into that. The best way for us as Christians to be prepared to help non-Christians have their questions answered with the gospel is practice with ourselves, first of all, continually. You and I, after becoming Christians, if you are a Christian here today, continue to have burdens, have questions, have concerns, have desires. 
you and I have to learn ourselves how to understand what those questions are, understand what drives our fears, what drives our anxieties, what drives our worries. And when we understand what's driving those uncertainties, those concerns, those, those burdens, and we learn how to bring them to the gospel and find the answer in Jesus, you and I then become skillful in helping other people do the same. Jesus Christ is relevant today with the current concerns of our society right now. We have to learn how to do that. So number one, we've got to begin where people are. The second thing that Peter does is he brings people personally to Jesus. Now, the first thing, the way this works out is he brings them to the person of Jesus. He brings them to the actual person of Jesus. I don't have time to really um, unpack and explain all of this, but let me show you the four major things about Jesus that he teaches them. And, and if you're taking notes, write these down. These are the four areas of Jesus you've got to learn, okay? Verse 22, he tells them about the pre-existence and life of Jesus. That it was the plan of God before time, and here's who Jesus was as a person who lived. So he tells them about the life and the ministry of Jesus. The kind of person he was, sinless, patient, loving, caring, confrontational at times with those who were self-exalting. That's who Jesus was. We've got to know the life of Jesus. Verse 23, he explains the death of Jesus. Why it matters that, yes, Jesus was delivered up by God, but ultimately it was the foreknowledge and the plan of God that he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was Killed. So we've got to take them to the life of Jesus, verse 22. Verse 23, to the death of Jesus. Now verse 24, all the way to verse 32, he tells them about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you've heard me over the last few weeks and, and in the last few months tell you how important it is that we understand the resurrection. And not just that we think that it happened, and not just that we believe in it like a fairy tale, but that we actually have confidence that Jesus Christ was dead and he is now alive. And you can go back in some of our old podcasts and find the reasons I've given you. But if you notice, the biggest section of time that Peter takes is on the resurrection. One verse, 22, on the, on the life. One verse on the death, verse 23. Verses 24 to 32 on the resurrection. That Jesus Christ is now alive. And then he finishes with verse 33 through 36 with the exaltation of Jesus. That he was glorified, that he ascended back to heaven, and that where he is now, he is both Lord, sovereign ruler, and Christ, chosen Savior. That's who Jesus is. And so what Peter does is he brings these listeners who have questions that he's addressing to the person of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. But he doesn't just bring them to the person Jesus, he brings them personally to Jesus. Look in verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What's the very next word? You, you crucified. Down in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, we're about 50-some days past, uh, technically 53 days past the death of Jesus. Many of the people listening were not in Jerusalem the time that Jesus was crucified. 
And so when Peter says that you crucified Jesus, when he says God has made him Lord in Christ, the man that you crucified, I don't believe that Peter is laying a reminder on them that it was their very hands that grabbed Jesus and laid him on the cross and drove the nail into his wrist. I don't believe that that's what he's saying. What is he getting at? He's saying you personally are involved in this. Oh, how? You and I, as we've seen in Scripture, if you're not familiar with this, perhaps you're not. Um, Romans 3.23 says that all people have fallen short of the glory of God by sinning, by sinning. And it's because of sin that Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. And so there is a sense in which although my physical hands were not placed upon Jesus to carry him or take him to the cross so that he might be crucified, very much so I'm involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And the gospel message is both the message of the person Jesus, but personally how I put him on the cross. Well, you might ask, well, how, right? Okay, you say sin. What exactly does sin mean? Quickly, let me explain. From Romans chapter 1, verses about 18 through 23, Paul lays out for us a charge of guilt, of what sin really is and how all of us have participated in sin. Let me tell you the three basic things that drive sin and undergird what sin is. And you tell me if all of us in here are not guilty. Number one, in verses, verse 23 of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul said this, that humanity has chosen creation over the creator. Translation, we want God's stuff and we don't want God. We want God's blessings. We want God's things. We want the stuff from God, but we don't really want a relationship with God. Number one, we all want his stuff, but we don't want him. Number two, verse 22, we all have believed that we are smarter than God and can run our own life. That God is foolish, that we are wise, that we have all insight, we are omniscient, we can know where we should go and how we should do it and what we should do and there's nobody in this world that can tell me how to live better than me. Number three, so we preferred God's stuff over God, we believe we are smarter than God. Number three, verse 21 of Romans 1, we have failed to acknowledge with gratitude the greatness and provisions of God. That God is our ultimate Father who has given to us the very air in our lungs, the beat in our heart, the life that we have, continues to give to us. And we fail to, with a gratitude, acknowledge Him. Anybody in here exempt from any of those three? That we at times have wanted His stuff, but not really Him? That we at times have thought we are way smarter than Him, we can run our own life? That we at times have failed to have gratitude for what we have and live in a complaining, cynical way. You see, that's the undergirding of a belief that leads people into the tailspin of living in sin. That is it. And because of that spurning of God, because of that, the only way for us to reconcile back to God was for sin to be dealt with objectively through the guilt and subjectively through the shame that bring us back. We are all guilty of this. It's a state of sin. And the beauty of the gospel, here's the beauty of the gospel. Don't miss this. The beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't just tell you what's true about Jesus. It tells you what's true about you. Now you need to learn to cherish that because you might not actually like it. 
but you should cherish it because there are very few people, very few, that do this with you every day in your life. You are lucky to have people in your life, if you do, that tell you the honest truth about you. Because most of us are way more interested in having sort of relational smoothness. We, we don't like the friction in our relationships, so we don't always tell people the truth, right? How comfortable does it tell somebody to have spinach in their teeth, right? We, 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 don't, we don't like to do that when we're talking about spinach, right? How uncomfortable is it for us to look into somebody's life and care enough about them to say, hey, I think you might be actually being a little bit cynical about that. You maybe should change your attitude. Hey, you know what? I think you should look at it from a different angle because maybe you're not approaching it the right way. How many people do that with you in your life? Hold you accountable. How beautiful is God that he tells you the truth about you? Now, here's why we don't believe that's a blessing. Because we don't know the freedom in being told what is true. But in this, where God, through Peter, says, hey, you are the ones that crucified Jesus. What do you mean me? Yes, sin. What do you mean sin? You think you're smarter than God? You're not thankful for God, and you want his stuff, and you don't want him. Ooh, gosh, that is me. And in this, you find freedom because it helps you make sense of what's wrong with the world, but wait for it, what's wrong with you? When you know, what is, when you have this worldview, this grid by which you see the world through, and you don't understand why things in Orlando happen or things in Dallas happen, you don't understand it, but you understand what sin is, and this gives you a grid by which you look through life and say, why would somebody do what they did in Dallas or Orlando, or why would Hitler do what he does? Because, because of these things of sin, he wants God's stuff and not God. She thinks she's smarter than God. And without gratitude, they don't recognize God's greatness. That is what's wrong with the world that's true. And that's what's wrong with me. And when I finally know what's wrong, I have the freedom to find the answer. Can you imagine having all kinds of symptoms, symptoms of illness and you go to the doctor month after month and they just say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Any of you ever experienced that? A prolonged delay in diagnosis? Anybody ever experienced that? It's torturous to not be diagnosed. Torturous. What Peter is doing in the gospel is telling you what's true about Jesus but what's true about you. He's not delaying the diagnosis. It's sin and all of its ugliness that causes evil in society, evil in this world. And Jesus, because of that sin and his great love for us, would go to the cross so that even me, yes, in my pride, in my arrogance, in my boasting, in my selfishness, in all of my hatred, in my vengeance, in my greed, in my mistrust, in my manipulation, in my lying, yes, in all of those things, he said, I'll still love you, and I'm going to give you the power to have those things gone from your life. You want that? Come back. That he would do that for us. Let's finish this. Because this is sort of a powerful thing. Uh, you, you've noticed how Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. When he says, let everyone here know for certain that Jesus is Lord, Sovereign, and Christ, Savior. And he stops his sermon right there. He says, you're guilty. You've crucified him. He's back alive, and he's the master of this world, and he's the Savior of their soul, and he stops. And I can just imagine the number of people who walked away saying, I don't buy that. How many people right now, if you, in your neighborhood, gathered up all your neighbors and said, 
Jesus died, he's now alive because of you and your sin, but he's resurrected and he's the Lord and he's the Savior. How many of your neighbors might be like, that uh, sounds a little weird to me. I'm not sure I buy that and might walk away. That would happen, right? How many of you walked away from that? Like, I'm not totally sure, okay? Peter stops his sermon at this moment and says, he's Lord and Christ and you killed him, but he's now alive and he's a Savior. And there's probably a massive amount of people that walked away. But there was a group in verse 37 that did something. The group said this. They were cut to the heart, which means they were affected. And they said to Peter and to the rest, men and brethren, what are we to do? What should we do? I believe, I, when you talk to me about what sin is, these problems from Romans 1, I believe that. I've participated in that. And I understand that to get me back into reconciliation, God sent Christ to die on the cross so that I could come back. I believe that. What should I do? And here's what Peter does, the third point. He begins where they are. He brings them to Jesus. Now he binds them eternally to Jesus. He binds them. Verse 38, that famous answer when he said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, do two things. Repent and be baptized. His answer is not just some religious ceremony. I mean, baptism, we really turned into that. And I, oh, I hate that. It's like some rite that we have, or some rite of passage to just kind of get into the church. That's not what it is. What repentance and baptism are, are two things, the two things that bind you to Jesus Christ forever. Repentance means to turn from the way that you were going and go towards something else. It means to pursue Him. It means to give up on the life that you were pursuing, the mind that you were living out of, the beliefs that you had, the way that you were walking and say, I'm not going to walk anymore that way. And I'm going to turn to pursue Jesus Christ. Do you see how that binds you to Jesus eternally? That if you're constantly pursuing Him, you're going to be with Him? Okay? So that binds you to Jesus, repentance. And this is a continual walk of the Christian life, continually repenting towards Jesus as you learn ways that you're not walking towards Him. And secondly, he says, be baptized. Be baptized. What does that mean? When baptism, we see a lot of things happening. One is that my old self, that sinful self that lived in those three ways I told you about, in sin, I want that person to die. And in the waters, I'm telling God, kill that person. And in the water, it also says that we're united with Jesus. We become one with Him. Like in a marriage ceremony, we become one. And it says in baptism, when we're raised, we have a new life. We're born again. And that life that we had before is dead. And the life we now have, we live by faith in the Son of God who has loved us and He gave Himself for us. And what we're doing in baptism is swapping our trust. Before baptism, we trust ourselves. We live for ourselves. We live for us. And in baptism, we're saying, I no longer want that selfish being to live. I'm swapping my trust to God and binding my life to Jesus, bringing myself into Him. And it's His life, it's His death, it's His resurrection, it's His ascension that I trust that makes me right with God and I have His, not mine anymore. And I'm bound to Jesus. Friends, the gospel has answers to our deepest questions, but you've got to be willing to know and ask your own questions. I find a lot of people that aren't really willing to dig into their frustrations. 
the things that elicit the highest emotion out of them. They just want to live in the sensation of their emotions. They don't want to ask why, but you've got to be willing to ask, why are my emotions being driven this way? What are my deepest questions of life? When you have them, bring them to the gospel and find the answer. And when you understand who Jesus is and understand your personal truth about Jesus and how that tells us what's true about us and what's true about God, it ultimately will call you to do one of two things. Either when you know what's wrong with you and what's wrong with the world, you either bind yourself to Jesus or you go somewhere else to find an answer. And I have yet to find an answer that works like Jesus. In doing so, you will find the freedom that you always wanted, greater than any national freedom. You'll find the peace that you've always been looking for, better than just momentary requisite from pain. And you'll find the joy that comes, not because of circumstances being right, money, right president, no more problems. You'll find a joy in spite of your circumstances that lead you eternally to the new heaven, new earth, and the life with God. That offer is always available. You can come as we stand and sing.